At-Tawwab, the first meaning is, At-Tawwab is the one who accepts repentance. He is the one who accepts the repentance, the tawbah from his slaves. So Allah is a tawwab because when the servant turns to Allah, returns back to Allah, then Allah is the one that returns back to the servant with forgiveness. With forgiveness. And so the servant comes to Allah, comes to God with sins. He returns to Allah from sin. Whereas Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala turns back to the servant with his forgiveness. So that's the meaning number one, the one who accepts repentance. The one who then returns back to the slave with forgiveness. The slave leaves his sin and turns to Allah with his sins. Allah turns to the slave with his forgiveness. Some of the ulama mention within this meaning, the first category of meaning, it is not just that Allah returns to the slave with forgiveness, but Allah returns to the slave with bounty, with blessing, with fadl, with karam, with generosity. Because you see, tawab has within it the linguistic connotation of recurrence, continuous. And so when you think about it, it's absolutely beautiful that Allah is a tawab, meaning Allah is constantly returning favors. He's constantly coming back and giving more and more favors, more and more blessings, more and more ni'am. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a tawab because he's constantly giving back to the human being blessings. And what does the human giving back to Allah? Sins. Sins and so-so good deeds. But Allah constantly returns back to the servant with his forgiveness and his blessings. So that's meaning number one of a tawab. It's a beautiful name, a tawab. The second meaning is the one who guides people to repent to him. Now this is absolutely incredible. So the ulama, they say, for every person's tawbah, it is preceded by a tawbah and it is proceeded by a tawbah. Meaning, in order for a person to be able to go to Allah and return back to Him, it's an indication that Allah turned to Him first. ثُمَّ تَابَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ لِيَتُوبُوا Allah says in Surah At-Tawbah, then He turned to them. تَابَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ تَابَ The name that the word uses tab from a tawab. Then Allah turned to the servant لِيَتُوبُوا So then the servant turned to Allah in repentance. So what this means is when a person commits a sin, you aren't the person that ran back to Allah independently. Allah wanted you back in His presence. Allah wanted you back in His circle of mercy. Allah wanted you back to be close to Him. So Allah has to turn to the servant first, and then and only then will the servant be given the tawfiq and the hidayah to turn to Allah in tawbah. So every person's tawbah is preceded by Allah turning to the servant. So that is a tawab the one who turns to the servant so that the servant comes back in repentance. These are the two meanings of at-tawab. Now, linguistically, and we mentioned this point here, and this is found in Lisan al-Arm by Ibn Mundur, which is one of the classical Arabic dictionaries. From the perspective of the human being, Returning to Allah from sin 
And from the perspective of Allah, returning to the servant with forgiveness. And it's also mentioned as well in the tafsir al-Tabari that it is the turning of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with his favors and with his bounties. Next one, please. Now, the name of Tawab appears 11 times in the Quran. 11 times in the Quran, this name appears. So it's not one of the more frequent, frequent ones, but it's not infrequent either. It is a bit of a, not a rare occurrence, but it's an infrequent recurrence. But when it happens, they are usually in regards to verses that deal with people who are, verses that deal with major sins, verses that deal with stories of repentance, and Allah will conclude the verse by reminding everyone that he is a tawab that he is a tawab now most commonly it is paired with ar-rahim most commonly it is paired with ar-rahim and one of the beautiful things about the names of Allah that you find in the Quran is that they come in combinations so each name has its own meaning at-tawab has a meaning ar-rahman has a meaning al-malik has a meaning and then all the names have a meaning. When they come together, they actually combine to form a third meaning with the combination of both. We spoke about this earlier, I believe. For instance, Allah is al-afu. Allah is the pardoner. Allah is the one who pardons. And Allah is al-qadir. And actually you find that Allah is afu al-qadir occurs as a combination in the Quran. Why is afu combined with Al-Qadir. Al-Qadir is the one who is in control of everything and who has power over everything. Because when you combine them together, you actually highlight and increase the beauty of both of those names. Because anyone can pardon, especially if they're not in control. Because you have nothing to get your right back with. But when you say Allah is Al-Afu, even though He is Al-Qadir, even though no one can challenge his authority, no one can say anything about it. So he is Al-Afu, even though he's Al-Qadir, it increases the power of Allah's pardon. And likewise, Allah is Al-Qadir. Allah is the one in control. And he is the one in control, even though he chooses to pardon. And so it then elevates the Qudra of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is how combinations work in the Qur'an. That both of these names come together and they actually complement each other. And they actually make the other one even more perfect. So, At-Tawabur Rahim is a very common combination that occurs with At-Tawab. And of course, it's the understanding of what is the source of Allah's turning. What does Allah turn with? It is with Rahmah. We spoke about that in the last slide. It, it comes with Rahmah. Allah is a tawabur rahim. What is he returning to the servant with? It is with his mercy. Because he is ar-rahim. So he is a tawabur rahim. Now the second one is interesting. At-tawabul hakim. And that occurs once in the Quran. Does anyone know where? Which surah does this combination occur? Excellent. Surah An-Nur. Who is that? MashaAllah. Very good. Surah An-Nur. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if it wasn't for the fadl and mercy of Allah, وَأَنَّ اللَّهُ وَالتَّوَّابُ الرَّحِيمُ And that Allah was, sorry, التواب الحكيم. And Allah was التواب and الحكيم. الحكيم is the wise, the one who has judgment. That is الحكيم. So there's a pairing between التواب and حكمة. There's a pairing between Allah turning to the servant and 
in, uh, in, um, in for, with forgiveness and hikmah. And the point is here, it, the clue is in the ayah itself. In the ayah in Surah An-Nur, Allah is describing a situation in a case, an unfortunate case, where a uh, husband or a wife essentially accuses the other one of infidelity. And then basically, what is the way forward from this? If there's no witnesses and there's no proof, except for the spouse themselves. And so essentially, it's the mutual invocation of curses, where essentially, they both essentially say, if I'm lying, then Allah's curse be upon me. And then the other one says the same. And then it's basically a stalemate. And that's it. Then Allah ends with this. If it wasn't for the fadl and the mercy of Allah, dot, dot, dot. Literally dot, dot, dot. There's a, a concept of hadaf in the Quran. And many times people, when they read the Quran, this might confuse them. So there is, it's called ellipsis in, uh, in English, which is basically when you have something that's not said, but it's kind of understood. Like, if you don't clean up your room, you know, you better clean up your room or else. And then that's it. It didn't need to be said. So you find this concept of hadaf in the Quran, this deletion that's there, this illusion, and it's part of the eloquence of the Quran. And so here, the ulama, they say, you know, if it wasn't for the fadl or mercy of Allah, the dot, dot, dot here is saying, obviously, if it wasn't for Allah's mercy and His blessing upon all of mankind, then this whole world would have been destroyed because of what was due of everyone of justice. Like, no one should be, this world should be destroyed with the amount of sin and evil that is there, that is being committed by human beings. That it should be finished, it should be game over. If Allah were to deal justly, that's why it says, were it not for Allah's mercy and His fadl. And then Allah says, and Allah is a tawabul hakim. Very beautiful here. What we get from this point is that what is the reason why Allah doesn't just punish everyone? Why not? Everyone will deserve it. And this is the point, especially in that scenario. You can imagine a person in that scenario. May Allah protect us all from that. Ameen. But you can imagine a person in that scenario that might have witnessed this infidelity and there's no justice and everyone is not believing them and all these certain things. Or the reverse, where a person is falsely accusing the other person, shaming their character, and putting them down and making this huge fitna and uh, betrayal and whatever, whatever it may be and wrongfully slandering them. Either way, that's a sad situation. And a person might think, you know, why doesn't Allah just come and intervene and, and show everyone what the truth is? So Allah says, if it wasn't that Allah was fumbling in mercy, forget about this issue, everything. If Allah wanted to give the justice to everyone, that would be it, game over. But Allah is a tawwabul hakim. And this is the secret for why, because Allah is a tawab al-Hakim, this world is still existing, we're still existing here today. What is it? What is the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the tawab? The whole point is this. Number one, al-Hakim is mentioned to show that the reason why Allah doesn't punish people immediately after they do something wrong or they say something wrong or they might reject Allah or they might be doing atrocities and crimes there's a wisdom that Allah is delaying it. And we understand, of course, that the wisdom there is we believe in an akhirah where everyone will be judged and everyone is given their life according to how Allah has wished. And so that time period in which they're alive, Allah will judge them. So we understand that there's a wisdom that Allah is delaying it. But on the other hand is this, Allah is a tawab. That's the other reason. 
And this links to a beautiful hadith of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where it is said, if you were to become a people, this is hadith Qudsi, which means is attributed to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. If you were all to become a people who didn't sin, didn't sin, perfect people, you think, yeah, that's exactly what Allah wants, doesn't he? He wants everyone to be perfect, doesn't he? That's the whole point. Sin is so evil. What does the narration say? If you were to become people who didn't sin, then Allah would destroy this creation and replace it with the creation that does sin so that they can ask Allah for forgiveness. Allah is a tawab and he loves to forgive and he loves when the servant comes to repent and that is why sin is allowed in this world. That is why Allah doesn't punish right after. Allah waits and wants his servants to turn back to him after they've committed wrong. It's not that as soon as they've committed wrong, that's it. That's your last straw. That's your last strike. Three strikes and you're out or one strike and you're out. You've done this injustice and you deserve this, that and the other based on justice. No, Allah is a tawab. And so he wants you to return back to him. And so he delays. And so many of us may have committed a sin a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, a decade ago. Who knows what it might have been? And Allah is waiting for us to return back to him. Allah has given you that life. Allah has given you breath after breath, heartbeat after heartbeat, so that you have the opportunity with one of those breaths that he's given you to return back home, to return back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Allah doesn't want to punish his servants. That's not what Allah wants. Allah wants, what does Allah want? Allah wants yatubu alayhim. Allah wants his servants to turn back to him in tawbah. That is what Allah wants. And so he gives us that time. And that's a beautiful thing about this combination here of at-tawab al-hakim. Why does Allah allow this sin to happen and, and not just punish us right away? Because Allah is giving us that time and giving us those chances. How many chances Allah gives us is absolutely incredible. How many chances Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us? Innumerable. No end. The chances that Allah gives so that we can return back to Him. Next slide, please. Okay. Now, that is a tawab. That is the name of tawab. Now, obviously, when we start to talk about this concept of tawbah, we're going to start with sin itself. And of course, sin is described as any ma'asiyah, any disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the general technical definition. Of course, this includes anything that is evil, anything that is munkar, anything that is known to be wrong, anything that's known to be something that causes harm to other people, whatever it may be, anything that is known to be evil and wrong and harmful, all of this is considered sin in Islam. All of this is considered sin in Islam. Um, and of course, we know that there are classifications of sin in Islam. There are major sins and then there are minor sins. The major sins are those that have connected with the sin, either a threat or a punishment in the next life, a curse that is mentioned where it said, Allah's curse be upon a person who does this and that, or uh, there is a punishment, like a legal punishment that's actually 
on this earth for it, something like theft or murder, for example. This is what defines a major sin. Now, these are the principles. Which are the major sins? There are things like, of course, shirk, which is idolatry, disbelief, of course, and then murder and stealing, lying, backbiting, all these sorts of sins. These are considered from the major sins. And people don't realize that. Yes, backbiting and gossiping and slandering, this is from the major sins, from the kabair. And people, it's so light on the tongue. Many people consider it minor. In any case. So this is the classification of sin. Now, why are we returning back to Allah? Primarily, it's because we love Allah and we want to return back to Him. And also, on top of this, we must recognize the urgency of us to do this because of the far-reaching consequences and impacts of sin in this world and in our life. So, we have the impact of sin on our heart. We have the impact of sin on our heart. You know what, actually, what I might do is... Yes, let's turn this into a bit of uh, activity, inshallah. Can we get into groups? Okay, impact of sin on the heart. Now, why we're talking about this is to recognize, of course, to stop ourselves from sinning, to recognize the negative consequences, but to also realize why we need to return back to Allah with Tawbah. So with the heart, very foundational point mentioned by Haris here, which is that a person who sins, they actually prevent guidance from coming to that heart. They prevent guidance from coming to the heart of that person because the light of Allah cannot enter into that heart that is full of sin. Excellent. Who else was doing heart? Anyone from the guys? From the sisters? You become stone-hearted. Very good. So there is a hadith that mentions that every time a person sins, a black dot is put on the heart until it accumulates and then the heart becomes black and then the Prophet Reference the ayah in Surah Mutaffifin. Kalla bal rana ala qulubihim. Bima kanu yaksibun. That rana is basically like uh, rust. That this rana, this, this rust has developed over their hearts because of what they did. And so the heart becomes hard. What does that mean? People say this a lot. This is going to harden your heart. What does it mean? What's the big deal if your heart becomes hardened? Why is that a problem? Yes. Excellent. Barakallahu feekum. When something is hard and tough and I put my hand on it and I go like this or I go like this or I go like that, does it change? Nothing. Maybe if one of the other brothers, mashallah, came, maybe it would change. <laughs> but no, it's not going to change, right? It's not going to change. That's the same thing with the heart when it comes to the reminders of Allah, the dhikr of Allah, the Quran, Dhikrullah, Iman, it doesn't move. It doesn't feel its effect. That is the problem of the hard heart. And we can diagnose that within ourselves. Play some Quran. This is the Quran. This is my diagnostic tool when it comes to the hard heart. See how long you can sit in your room and listen to Quran for. Without being like, okay, that's enough. That will indicate how hard the heart has become. If you can't tolerate it beyond a minute or two minutes, then there's some work to be done to chip away at the heart and to remove the negative influences that do harden the heart and don't make the heart easily affected by the remembrance of Allah. 
Allah says in the Quran in Surah Hadid, "Alam yaknin al-ladina amanu an taqshaa qulubuhum li dhikrillah wa ma nazla min al-haq." Hasn't the time come for those who believe to have their hearts shook, humbled from the remembrance of Allah and what Allah has revealed of the truth? And so the hard heart is a heart that is not affected by the remembrance of Allah, is not affected by reminders, doesn't feel whatever it may feel in salah, isn't able to shed tears when they make dua. This is a hard heart. And everything in society, I shouldn't say everything in society, it's an extreme statement. Many things in society make our hearts hard by the nature of the hustle and bustle of society. I'm not just talking about, you know, you know Western societies, just generally society. Either when it comes to, um, especially like big cities and these sorts of things, everything's hustle focused, work and traffic and, uh, you know, uh, trying to uh, uh, consume whatever it is that we need to consume and amass whatever material we want to amass and just thinking about that and the other. And of course, the marketing billboards all in front of you, everything artificial, everything fake being put forward. And every moment's time, all we hear all the time in our ears, this music here, go into the, uh, to the shopping mall, you hear these songs here, you hear that here, you go here. Everything is there and it's making the heart harder, harder and harder and harder. And so a person doesn't want to listen to Quran. A person can't read the Quran more than a few pages and then it becomes tiring. Now, that doesn't mean you go like ultra marathon Ironman style and you're like, all right, that's it. I'm going home and I'm not stopping for like another hour. That is like if you do the same thing in a physical uh, situation, if you never ran before and then you just decide to run a marathon, you get rhabdomyolysis probably. And so you need to make sure that you take step by step and gradual to be able to bring back life to the heart and have the heart easily affected by the reverence of Allah. So very good. So Ibn Mas'ud one of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad said that, and this is a very delicate situation and I appreciate that. And I don't want to come off as extreme or anything like this. Um, Ibn Mas'ud said that the love of two things can never be present in the same heart. The love of Quran and the love of music. Now, I know music is a big issue, especially amongst very young, especially amongst young Muslims, because oftentimes people can actually become very dependent upon music and these sorts of things. Um, and of course, the music we're talking about is about, you know, like very obscene and these sorts of things, right? Like all the hip hop and these sorts of things and whatnot, right? Uh, with very obscene lyrics that speak about sin and ma'asiyah and all these sorts of things, right? That's the one I'm speaking about in particular. Um, but yes, and anyone can really attest to this, that the more a person listens to music, the less the heart enjoys listening to the Qur'an. And that's one of the reasons why you found amongst the companions, many of them very much disliked music uh, and really avoided it from that point of view. Um, I hope that answers the question. Um, okay. Um, yes, so effect of sin on the heart. Effectiveness in the heart. And by the way, I just want to say as well, that's something that a lot of even practicing Muslims struggle with, this idea of music and whatnot. As I said, it's something to work towards and to replace it. And, and this is the thing. Quran is not a replacement for music. Quran is not a replacement for music. Music is a totally different genre in and of itself. And it's not that the Quran is a replacement for it. But it's that a person, when they're engaged in music, they're searching for something to move their soul. 
discuss the idea. That's why people like to listen to music because the rhythm and all these things, it gets to something beyond their physical. It's really something that strikes with their soul and their heart. That's why people find it very, very uh, emotionally connected with them. People become very emotionally connected with different songs as well. If they're going through a tough time, they might listen to a particular song. Um, so these are things, as I said, and it's not just music. I'm not putting it as, as one thing. It could be like TV shows. It could be um, food, snacking. Like the fridge has all the answers. Everyone just goes, gravitate to the fridge, just open the fridge. Everyone's searching for something. But seriously, why did someone just open up the fridge randomly? They're just wanting something. They're trying to feed their soul with whatever it may be. And so we often go to all these different things. But obviously the point is if you're trying to really satiate your soul, it has to be done towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the point. So I want to be a bit more nuanced about that issue. Excellent. Okay. Effective sin in your heart. Effective sin in your mind. Excellent point. The idea that the more and more a person is exposed to a sin or is committing a sin, then this person is becomes desensitized to it. And so their mind then starts to become corrupted and they start to see it as it's not that bad. What's the big deal about this? Is it really haram to, you know, have a girlfriend or a boyfriend? Is that really problematic? Is that really an issue? Is zina really that bad? Is alcohol really that bad? The more and more a person is exposed to it, the more and more they become desensitized to it. Excellent point. Uh, effective sin on your body, on your physical body. Excellent point you're mentioning. So the idea here is that when we talk about things that are forbidden, the sharia, these sorts of things, it's, not, it's always things that are actually bad for us. And so there are many sins that are actually bad for our physical body. Like actual physically, there's a connection between uh, consumption of uh, alcohol, drugs, and all these different things on the body and on the mind as well. Uh, and as well, overeating and these sorts of things that are frowned upon and, and whatnot. These are things that are actually bad for the body. Now, beyond this even, some of the ulama, they say that the more and more a person sins, the more and more... This is what they say, and this is not like a physical law or anything like this. This is just something they've said anecdotally and something that they've said, look, there should be, might be a connection here. The more and more a person sin, you'll see it on their face as they go older. Like they become more disfigured, a bit more kind of, uh, their face becomes a bit more kind of uh, disfigured and uh, their body and these sorts of things, not as, not as much longevity, more disabled, these sorts of things is a sign of a life of sin. Now, does not mean... Every person that you see that's going through the aging process is, oh, khalas, uncle, you deserve this. That's why you're sitting down. No, I don't know what you did when you were young. That doesn't mean that at all. But it means that it's possible that a person, when they're going through, it is, this is the reason or the cause. Uh, excellent. All right. On your character. Yes. Subhanallah. Amazing. So the idea that sin will eventually corrupt your character as it will change, similar to what the brother was saying here, it will desensitize you to it and it will make you want to validate it and it will make you seek out company that enjoy that type of lifestyle. And so then therefore, it affects your character in that particular way as well. All right, just in the interest of time, I'll just mention these ones inshallah. So on your sustenance, on your risk, as we know, uh, and this is from the text actually, that sin decreases your risk. And risk could be wealth, could be lifespan, could be family, could be whatever it may be. It could be exam marks for exam time that's coming up. Whatever it may be, sin decreases a person's risk. On the earth, ظهر الفساد في البر والبحر بما كسبت أيدي الناس 
Corruption has occurred and appeared on the land and sea because of what mankind has put forward. This is a very profound verse. And there are other narrations that speak about, for instance, in the people of the Bani Israel with Musa salam, with Moses, that one time they were suffering a drought and they're making dua and making dua for Allah to send rain. And Allah reveals to Musa salam, there's one person in your congregation that has not, has committed a sin, has not done tawbah. Then Musa salam, comes out and says, everyone make tawbah to Allah. They all make tawbah. Then the rain comes. One person sin and actually everyone bore the worldly consequences, not the moral consequences in the next life. Because No one can bear the burden of another. We don't believe in this idea that one person's sin can be put and transferred onto another person. But we're all in this together in this world. One person's sin can affect a global catastrophe, a communal catastrophe because of the sin of an individual. This is what we learn from the story of Musa salam. And so here's one thing. When we look to the plight of the people around the world, whether it's poverty, whether it's um, all the humanitarian crises that are happening from a systemic level to a uh, maybe a, a natural disaster level, whatever it may be, relief that's required or political turmoil, we all know and our hearts are with all those different people who are oppressed across the world. As angry as we feel, we all need to look inward. Is that sin that I'm doing contributing or part of the reason why that's happening in that world, part of the world? Now, that's not to say the only solution is then to do tawbah and forget them. No, you go and you give your charity and you do your advocacy and you do all these things. That's very important. But at the same time, if you're doing that without doing tawbah for yourself, then this is empty. Because it's quite possible that our own sins are the reasons why other people are suffering in our ummah, whether it be here or in other places. That corruption has appeared on the land and the sea because of what mankind has put forward. So take some personal responsibility when you see what's happening. Yes, you help them with your finances, with your time, whatever you can, but also help them with your tawbah. With your tawbah. And then in the next life, of course, the consequence of sin. We know about the barzakh and the grave and these sorts of things. Inshallah, in a few months, we'll be having a very full, detailed akhirah series. Inshallah, we'll go into that in detail. Okay, next slide. All right, the path to redemption in Islam. So, as I mentioned, major and minor sins. And there's a category of indefensible sins. These are things like kufr and shirk, disbelief and idolatry. So, indefensible in the next life, by the way. In this life, of course, everything can be forgiven by Allah Azza wa Jal. So, the four different general paths to redemption. The four ways in which sins are erased. Number one is Tawheed itself. Just the simple Shahada. La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. It wipes out all the indefensible sins. And the reason why, by the way, just I guess it's been color-coded. The orange is maybe. Possible. Means it's possible. Green is definite and X is no. So when we talk about indefensible sins, the only way is Tawheed. Can't be like worshipping an idol and then asking for forgiveness and continue to worship the idol. So same thing, obviously. You can do a good deed, give charity, and then worship the idol. It doesn't, doesn't work. So the only thing that clears the indefensible sins is Tawheed. Now, when it comes to the major sins, Tawheed on its own, maybe, can. Even without Tawbah. Allah can forgive in the next life, whatever it may be. Whatever the major sins, 
just with Tawheed alone, just with the Kalima, SubhanAllah. There's that narration, it's called the Hadith of the Bitaqa, the Hadith of the Card. There's an epic name of this Hadith, the Hadith of the Card. What is the Hadith of the Card? The Hadith of the Card is referring to a person that will come on the Day of Judgment and 99 scrolls, each scroll extending as far as the eye can see in all directions. And what's written on these scrolls? All of the sins. Every single sin. That small glance, that off word, that bad face you made in your parents, uh, to your parent, that bad word that you might have said under your breath, whatever it may have been, all of that written down. 99 scrolls. Then the person will think they're destroyed and they'll say, have you done any good? And he said, I haven't done any good. This is, this is my life in front of me. This is my life. And he will think he's doomed. Then it will be said, no, there is one good deed. And a card will be brought. A card will be brought. And what is on this card? La ilaha illallah. And this card will be weighed on the other side of the scale and it will tip the balance. That's the power of the kalima, la ilaha illallah, in living by it and believing it with conviction. So tawheed can. Uh, and all the minor sins as well, tawheed can also, just a simple, um, just a simple um, shahada, can wipe it out as well. Definitively though, without a shadow of a doubt, because here Allah has a choice and it's based on justice, mercy, all these different considerations and whatnot. Tawbah, 100%. Major sins, gone. Tawbah, of course, includes the minor sins as well, gone with Tawbah. Istighfar, now we're going to, just at this point I'll mention the difference. Tawbah is a very specific mode of asking Allah for forgiveness that includes a few things and we're going to talk about those things in the next slide. Istighfar is just asking, oh Allah, forgive me. That is istighfar. Oh Allah, forgive me of my sins. That is istighfar. Tawbah includes istighfar and some other things as we're going to come to. So Tawbah includes istighfar and others, whereas istighfar is just simply asking Allah, oh Allah, forgive me of my sins. So that statement in that dua, oh Allah, forgive me of my sins, is, will deal with all the minor sins. Gone. When it comes to the major sins, it's an X there. Some of the ulama have said some different things, but very few, minority. So I'll just keep that as an X there. The tawbah is required for major sins. And it's meant to be specific for that major sin that a person did. And if they can't remember all the major sins they do, then they do a general tawbah for all the sins that they know about and those that they don't, might not even know about. Amal salih are good deeds. Good deeds, righteous deeds. Anything good, smiling in the face of your brother, uh, you know, gi giving some charity, walking to the masjid, making dhikr, saying the salawat, reading Quran, praying salah, uh, whatever, any good thing that you do, that's amal salih. As we said, that actually can deal with the minor sins completely, wipe them off. And many of the times the Prophet ﷺ attached a good deed to forgiveness of sins. Like for instance, making wudu and then making the dua or making the shahada, ashadu an la ilaha illallah, wa ahadu ilaha sharika, wa ashadu anna muhammadan, abduhu rasoolu, Allahumma ja'ali minam al-tawwabin, wa ja'ali minam al-mutatahirin. Different variations of the dua. With this, all sins, sins are forgiven. It's referring to the minor sins. And each act of the wudu itself, minor sins are being just thrown off. And when you go into ruku, it is said, the sins fall off like there's sand on your back, and it's coming off as you come down into sajda. This is all minor sins. 
And this is why the Prophet ﷺ said, do you consider a man who has a home and outside of his home he has a stream and five times a day he takes a bath. Would he be, have any dirt on him? And they say, no, he'll be clean. He'll be crystal clean. They say, that is the example of the person who prays Salah. And they're constantly cleaning themselves of what? All those minor sins that creep up. So you see, the path to redemption of Islam is actually very easy. It's actually made very easy. And it's something that is done just by habit, by being a Muslim. The power of tawbah. I'll just do the English for the sake of time. This is a hadith Qudsi in Sahih Muslim. Hadith Qudsi again is a hadith of the Prophet in which he's quoting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it is the speech of Allah, but it is not Quran. Just like Allah spoke to Musa alayhi salam and that wasn't Quran. And Allah spoke to the Prophet in the Surah of Mi'raj and that wasn't Quran. And these are hadith as well. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has spoken it. The Prophet has conveyed it. But Allah did not choose for this speech to be in the Quran. So, hadith Qudsi. Oh Allah, forgive me of... Sorry, Allah has said, a servant committed a sin. So he's describing a situation. A servant committed a sin. And he said, Oh Allah, forgive me of my sins. And Allah said, my servant committed a sin. And then he came to realize that he has a Lord who forgives the sins and takes to account for the sinner. Meaning the reason why he asks Allah for forgiveness is of course because he knows there's something to forgive. Meaning there's punishment and consequences that Allah can take me to account. And it's worthwhile for me to ask Allah for forgiveness because Allah is forgiving. So it's a recognition of two things when a person asks Allah for forgiveness. Two things about Allah are being affirmed. That he's forgiving, but that he can also hold you to account for your sin. Um, he then again committed a sin and said, my Lord, forgive me of my sin. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, my servant committed a sin and then came to realize that he has a Lord who would forgive his sin or would take him to account for the sin. He again committed the sin. sin and the same thing is said. Then after the third time, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? O oh servant, do what you like. I'mal ma shi'at. Do what you like. I have forgiven you. This phrase, do you know who this was said? This phrase was said to in the seerah? Do whatever you wish. The, yeah. Excellent. The veterans of Badr, one of the highest ranking companions of the Prophet, the veterans of Badr. Allah said to the veterans of Badr the same statement. Do what you wish, I've forgiven you. The person who persists in their istighfar and tawbah are given the same status. Why? Because they're engaged in spiritual warfare. They're engaged in a battle with their sins and they can't stop. These are people who are sincere but they may fall into habitual sin. They may be addicted to a sin. They may be constantly falling. But they're sincere. Every single time they fall, they don't let the voices of, who are you to ask Allah for forgiveness? They don't let the voices of, just give up, just go and just go into that rabbit hole and just live that lifestyle. They don't fall into any of those whispers. Their iman in Allah is so strong. Every time they fall, they let, the, they pick, they let their iman pick them up. They pick themselves up and they raise their hands to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala despite how mad and insane it might seem. 
It might seem incredulous. Like, yeah, Allah, I just asked you for forgiveness yesterday or even a few hours ago or whatnot, and now I'm asking again. It seemed generally absolutely insane that any person would think that another individual would actually forgive them despite the fact how many times and how often they've returned to that same sin. Between human beings, you couldn't show your face to anyone if a person has displeased a person that much. It only makes sense to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It only makes sense to At-Tawwab. It only makes sense to Al-Ghafoor Al-Rahim Al-Rahman Al-Wadood. That is the only time this makes sense. That you can consistently and constantly make mistakes, make sin, disobedience, do serious crimes. But yet you can still return to Allah and Allah can take you right back and reset to the beginning and shower you with His blessings and shower you with His mercy. There is not a single thing that you can do on this earth that can challenge the mercy of Allah. There is not a single thing and there's not a single amount. There is no minimum or maximum exceeded limit of sin that is to be done. No one can do anything to challenge Allah's mercy to be able to forgive you with such a perfect forgiveness as if it's never been done. That is the power of tawbah. Next slide. And on top of that, on top of that, not only can Allah just forgive it all, Allah can turn all of those sins accumulated for that lifetime with a sincere tawbah, Allah can turn them into good deeds. All of those sins, all of the time spent in the ma'asiyah of Allah, lifestyles that were haram, whatever it might have been, if you turn yourself back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then Allah turns all of those sins into good deeds on the day of judgment, according to many of the ulama. That's what this means. That is the power of tawbah, not the power of your tawbah. It's not because of who you are, it's because of who Allah is. Many times people, they think, who am I to ask Allah? You know, Allah, maybe He won't forgive me, these sorts of things. Realize, Allah is not forgiving you because of you. Allah is forgiving you because of Him. Because He is Al-Ghafoor Rahim. But here's the other thing. Allah sees value in what He's created. Allah created you. Allah created you. And Allah sees value in every single soul that He's created. And wants you to return back to Him, no matter how far we may have strayed from the path. The steps to tawbah are five. This is the process of tawbah. The first one is nadam. Nadam, the, the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, nadam huwa tawbah. The essence of tawbah is nadam. When a person feels that regret and guilt inside, they have sensed and felt that tawbah. And that regret and guilt should not be rooted in selfish reasons. Like, oh, I feel bad about myself. I feel bad that I shouldn't have committed that sin because I'm so amazing. I'm so great. How could I do something like this? I'm supposed to be a pious Muslim. That's the wrong regret. The right regret is I did something that could distance me from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It stems from a deep love for Allah. That you feel that you're distant now from Allah. You've done something to compromise your proximity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the guilt. And that is the first step. Guilt or regret. The second step is ikhlas, sincerity. Tawbah nasuha Sincere tawbah. You're not doing it for anyone or anything or to show off or to do anything like this. 
it is sincere, and it is only for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and it is because you want to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not because you want to make yourself feel better about yourself. That a person commits tawbah because they don't like the feeling that I feel like I'm a bad Muslim. No. If you have that feeling, that's a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's humility. We all must recognize that that's who we are. We are sinners. Every son of Adam is a sinner. Every son of Adam is a sinner. And the best of sinners are those who repent. The best of sinners are those who repent. And so when you have that feeling, it's not to try and do the tawbah so you feel better about yourself. But it's to recognize that's who I am and I'm returning to Allah in my true form and my true authentic state of how I am. Broken before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The third one is actually asking Allah for forgiveness. So in the dua, asking Allah to forgive you for that particular sin, if it's a particular sin, or for all the sins of tawbah, whatever it may be, of every sin, if you want to complete tawbah. It can, so the tawbah can be am, general, or it can be specific. It can be general for everything, or it can be specific. Then the fourth is azm. It now needs to be followed with resolve, with firm determination. I will not return to this once, I will not return to this sin again. With a firm determination, with a firm will, and with a strong belief that you will not return to it again based on what you want. And this is the tricky part. Remember the hadith we mentioned just earlier, the person who's continually sinning and sinning and sinning. Not only do they turn back to Allah, but every time their azm is perfected. Despite the fact how many times they're falling into the same sin, you have to have the same azm as if it's the first time and the thousandth time. That it's not happening again. And where does that strong-willed, almost audacious optimism coming from? Not from your own self, from the rahmah of Allah. That you trust and you put your tawakkul in Allah's rahmah, that He will pull you out of whatever problems you're drowning in, whatever sins that you're drowning in. And you pull yourself and you hold your hand out to hold on to the rope of Allah Azza wa Jal, and your confidence is not in your own abilities, but it is in the rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the fifth is kafara. So this is, if you've done something to harm someone else, then kafara means you make it up. So you harm someone by shouting at them or cussing them out, you go there, you have to you apologize. Kafara as well, even for sins between a person and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even in these situations, kafara can be, you are then going to say, say a person struggle with their prayer and they've been praying regularly and these sorts of things, then finally they make tawbah and they start praying regularly. Kafara would then be, I'm going to start teaching people how to pray. Maybe I'm going to start teaching new Muslims how to pray. Or maybe I'm going to start, you know, uh, encouraging other people to pray as a means of redemption. Kafara is like that redemptive attitude. That it's the idea of, I've lost something, I'm going to gain it back. Kafara is a very general concept there. Now, before I'm asked about this in the Q&A, the issue of backbiting, so some of the ulama, they differ. Some of them say that the kafara is you go to the person you backbit, you admit, and you ask for, your, for their forgiveness. But many of the ulama say this was counterproductive and it will make the situation worse. You go and tell someone, hey, I said this, then that about you. Can you forgive me? You'll actually create more of a rift. So they say the kafara for backbiting is whoever you backbit, whoever you backbit to. So say you're speaking to, so say I'm speaking to Haris, about Mahir, and I'm saying, oh, this guy Mahir, man, he's a weird guy, man. His, his ball game is weak. He's a guy that he can't hit a shot to, to save his life. So I've said that to Haris about Mahir, and I'm like, astaghfirullah, what did I do? Make tawbah to Allah. I come back to Haris, I'm like, man, you know, Mahir is actually, 
He's an amazing guy. He's a really good basketball player, actually. And he's just a straight up dude. So uh, this is the point where they say you go to that person and you would start praising that person that you bat big before. The person that you bat big before, you start praising them, taking it back what you said. That is the kafara for it. And that makes the most sense. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. So this is the point that through tawbah and the process of tawbah, and this is why tawbah is so important and part of the human experience as a Muslim and as a believer, it is through tawbah that a person realizes many of the names of Allah Azza Almost all the names of Allah are relevant to the process of tawbah. The realization of Allah's authority of His decree, the realization of the wisdom of Allah, realization of the kindness of Allah, His hilm, His forbearance, His generosity, and the fact that He sees and He hears, all these things are all involved in the concept of tawbah. That is why tawbah is so important. And so the sin isn't the point. It's about what are you going to do after the sin? And how many times are you going to pick yourself up back again and get back into coming closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And here's one of the points from Ibn Qayyim that from tawbah, the servant reaches the highest level of humility and surrendering and brokenness in front of Allah. Kamal al-Ubudiyya. The, the shortest path to Allah, it is said, Ibn Qayyim mentions this in Bidal al the shortest path to Allah is tawbah. A person feels the closest to Allah in the moments of tawbah. In the moments of that brokenness and humility before Allah, those are the moments where a person feels the strongest connection to Allah, the strongest dependency upon Allah, the strongest destitution before Allah, and the most authentic before Allah. That in front of everyone else, we have to put on these masks. We have to put on masks of whatever it may be, masks that everything's okay, masks that we are presentable people, that we don't have any problems, that we don't have any weaknesses, that everything's okay. The only place that we can remove these masks and remove all these veils that we use to function in society is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the only place we can actually truly be authentic and realize that you and who you are, for who you are, without any front, without anything, there's no secrets with Allah. When you stand before Allah, there's no trying to make excuses. Allah sees through all any excuses you might make. Allah knows the truth. 100% Allah knows you better than you even know yourself. And the freedom that comes from being authentic before Allah and returning to Him in tawbah and then realizing the last point here, we're going to get to this last narration here, which Ibn Qayyim describes as the greatest secret of tawbah. And this is another hadith Qudsi. In that moment, when you are your complete, entire, authentic self before Allah, no masks, you are who you are, you feel like you found yourself. You find yourself in those moments of tawbah to Allah as you turn to Allah with all these weaknesses and flaws and all these different things that are there. Then you realize the moment that you did that, the joy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is absolutely unparalleled. The Prophet said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, I am as my servant thinks I am. And I am with him as he remembers me. How you think about Allah, Allah will act that way towards you. If you think good thoughts about Allah, that Allah is al-Rahman, Allah is al-Hakim, and there's wisdom in everything that happens and there's rahmah there, and Allah can forgive me, then Allah will act that way towards you. And he further said, by Allah, Allah is more pleased with the repentance of his servant. The term here is actually farah. Farah has not pleased. Ridha is pleased. Farah is, a, in, is joy. It's happiness, actually. That's what farah is. It's a, it's a jubilation. Farah is when people um, celebrate. Celebration. 
That is the emotion that's being described. Allah is more joyous with the repentance of his servant, with the tawbah of the servant, than what one of you would do on finding the lost camel in the waterless desert. What does this mean? Put yourself in those shoes. And there's many narrations that actually mention this point. You're, on, you're in the desert, in the heat of the desert, waterless. No food around, no drink around. And on your camel is all your provisions, your shelter, your food, your drink, everything. And the camel goes in, away from you. The camel is gone. That person now thinks their life is over. That's it. Finished. Completely finished. Literally, this would happen before, and that is what this would mean to them. Death. And so the other narrations say they find a tree, they lie down in front of the tree, and they literally wait for death. They're literally waiting for death. And you can imagine the thoughts in their mind. Never able to see their family again. Never see their friends again. Ambitions that have now been broken. Life is over. In that moment of intense sorrow and grief and sadness, then all of a sudden he sees the camel return to him. His life has returned to this person. Imagine if you were in that situation, how happy would you be? Imagine someone in that situation, how happy would they be? Allah is saying he's more happy than that when his servant returns back to him in tawbah. So in that moment of authenticity and brokenness before Allah, where you've admitted your sins and you've asked Allah for forgiveness, realize Allah is so happy that you've come back to Him. You've come back home. You return back to your Creator. And He's so happy that you've come back to His presence. That is from not any need or dependency that Allah becomes happy. That is purely out of pure love, of pure al-wadud, the most intensely loving, of pure al-Rahman, the most merciful, the most kind, al-Latif. All these different qualities showering upon that person in that moment of tawbah. So we conclude with this and we say that tonight, this is homework for, for everyone here at Faith Circle, including myself and everyone. Take five to ten minutes and it's time to start this journey of tawbah. Because tawbah is an art. It's not something that is, you know, it's just like a procedure. Tawbah is something that you need to bring yourself into that level of awareness, that level of presence to be able to bring that forward. Tawbah is the coming together of extreme gratitude for Allah because of who He is and guilt on your end because of what you've done. And those two coming together, gratitude and humility coming together. Abu'u laka bi ni'matika alayhi wa abu'u bi dhambi. This is Sayyidul Istighfar. This is the Master of Istighfar. I admit to you all the blessings that you've given me. And I admit to you all of the sins that I've done. Bringing these two things to the heart breaks the heart. And a person then is able to, between that, find that spark of nearness to Allah and run to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in tawbah and repentance and then experience and realize his karam, his fadl, his love, his mercy, and his repentance. And realize as well that you going there and returning to Allah was preceded by Allah turning to you first. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept all of our istighfar. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, accept all of our tawbah. Ameen ya rabbil alameen. Jazakumullahu khairan. Barakallahu feek.
Inshallah, we'll open it up uh, maybe five minutes or so for any questions. If there are any, um, while you guys are thinking of a few questions, um, just for next week, inshallah, uh, it will be on the name Al-Haq, uh, the truth. And uh, we have a special guest, uh, Dr. Tasneem Al-Khik, who's coming from America, as uh, a PhD in Islamic law. Uh, and she'll be speaking about postmodernism, inshallah, because postmodernism is the challenge on the concept of truth. Uh, and so, Bidnai Ta'ala, so I'll be, I'll be uh, speaking for the first part of Faith Circle, and then she'll be coming for the second part, inshallah. Uh, any questions at all? Yes, Bukhti in the back. So the structure of dua. So yes, there's generally a general st structure you can say, but as I said, it's, it's, it's an art. Just like in art, there's a general structure. You don't just go and just wet paint everywhere, right? Um, the structure is there as a general kind of guideline, you can say. And so these are the prin general principles of dua. Dua should be full of what's called tawassul, seeking nearness to Allah. So tawassul with his names and attributes. So number one, principle number one, or theme or genre number one, dua should be filled with mention of his names and attributes. Number two, uh, dua should start actually with the hamd of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So praising and thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is also something that should permeate a person's dua. Number three, salawat upon the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Sending salat and salam upon the Prophet ﷺ for that dua as a way of honoring the Prophet ﷺ and also realizing gratitude as well. Who taught you to make dua like this? Who taught you to be so connected to Allah? Who brought this deen, such a beautiful deen? You didn't need to go through anyone, no pious person or anything like this, just you and Allah in your bedroom. Don't even need to go to like a, a, a masjid or anything like this. You can access Allah everywhere. Who brought this deen? The Prophet ﷺ. So salawat upon the Prophet ﷺ. There are other, other things as well, such as mentioning uh, a good deed that you would have done sincerely for Allah's sake and saying, oh Allah, I did this sincerely for your sake, so oh Allah, grant me X, Y, Z. Um, there's also mentioning the consequences of what you're asking for and a good consequence that would come out with this. Oh Allah, grant me a righteous family so that we may uh, increase the, uh, so that we may teach the deen on to the next generation and these sorts of things. Oh Allah, grant me righteous company so that I can uh, you know, come closer to you. So mentioning positive consequences as well. Um, these are just some of the, and then of course, filling it with the prophetic adi'iyas as well. Learning some of the prophetic du'as and putting that in as well. These are all different themes. You don't have to necessarily do all of them all together. Hamd is generally very uh, emphasized as something that should be done before asking Allah. Is you, a person should praise and thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala before entering through. But it's basically recognizing these principles and putting them into that du'a. Raising your hands is also a form of tawassal, of course, as well. Facing the qibla, having wudu. There are so many things to make your dua more acceptable to Allah. Choosing the right time as well. The last third of the night is a, one of the best times to make dua. It's the time where Allah comes to the lowest heaven and He asks, who is out there of my servants that are making, that is worshiping me so that I can accept from them? Who is there that's asking of me so that I can give them? And who's there asking for forgiveness so that I can forgive them? Um, Places, of course, as well, uh, like, uh, you know, obviously Mecca, Medina, Al-Aqsa, very special and sacred places, Masajid in general, gatherings such as this, gatherings of knowledge. Anyways, we can go on and on and on and on. Um, we're actually thinking of running a course on dua, actually. Um, uh, but anyways, I hope that that was sufficient, inshallah. Yes, the question is, if a person has harmed another person, then what are the steps they need to be taken for their tawbah to be accepted? We actually did talk about this. Does anyone remember what we described it as? What was the step? Kafara, very good. 
that was the concept of the kafara of making up if someone if you've wronged someone so the way it's not that there's a formal step to this it's that if you've wronged someone then you must make it up to that person so if you've taken something wrongfully it's obviously giving it back to them that is obviously the kafara but if it's something that you cannot give back then it is asking them for their forgiveness and you know humbling before them and these sorts of things um if it's something that uh might be that uh you've let them down then it's making it up with something else so it's always appropriate to whatever crime that was done to that person if it's like you hurt them physically then also you can offer okay you know <laughs> you can do the same to me um these sorts of things uh that is the concept of kafara uh that is the concept of making up when you've harmed another person so the question is um allah guides people to repent to them so the question is can we ask forgiveness for other people um you know and do tauba on their behalf uh, and what about people who were not muslim and may have passed away so the first question is yes you can ask uh forgiveness for others uh and the proof for this is in the quran many of them you know allahumma uh, rabbana aghfir lana wa li ikhwanina alladhina sabaquna bil iman uh allah forgive us and all of our brothers in faith who have preceded us um Oh Allah, forgive me, my parents, and all the Muslims. We say, So when it comes to believers, yes, we can ask Allah for forgiveness for another person. Now the question you asked about, what about those who don't believe in Islam? Uh, so for those who don't believe in Islam, you make dua and you can pray for them. You can pray for Allah to guide them. You can pray for general blessings for them as well. So like for Allah to bless them in general, maybe some in this dunya, so say, you know there's a friend or what not that's sick you can ask Allah to you know Allah cure them make it easy for them and these sorts of things but one thing that we're not allowed to do is ask Allah to forgive them that's just one thing that we're not particularly asked to do but all the other things that you can you can do that and say if a person's passed away is the same thing now this is separate to the issue of what is their fate in the next life this is just a ruling of someone that we don't know to be muslim this is one of the rights of a muslim it's almost like one of the perks of becoming muslim is one of the gifts is that we can ask forgiveness for each other and this was something that was really tough from the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and ibrahim alayhi salam both of them ibrahim alayhi salam with his father who didn't believe and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam who was barred from also asking forgiveness for of course her his own parents because that was before islam even came uh in terms of their salvation in the next life this is a separate issue about whether they actually heard about islam did they reject islam or did they just not hear about it we spoke about this i believe um uh, last class Uh, and the idea is of course that we believe as muslims that if a person has not heard the message of islam then they're not going to be held accountable for something they haven't heard of and so in the next life they'll be given a test that's directed towards them a messenger will be sent to them and there's different tests that are mentioned in the narrations and based on how they respond to that test then their fate will be determined but if we don't know their state then we can't ask allah to forgive them particularly jazakum khairan okay we'll do last question Yes. Uh so for the five steps um they're not necessarily sequential they kind of happen together. Nadam ikhlas istighfar they kind of happen together. Kafara generally is the step after so it the it's better I mean you can do it reverse where you make it up and then you ask Allah for forgiveness but generally speaking you ask Allah for forgiveness then Allah will bless your kafara. Like sometimes it might be tough to go and reconcile with another person so you'll get the baraka of accept it tell me of Allah when you ask Allah for forgiveness and you really ask Allah for forgiveness for how you treated someone else if Allah accepts that then he will make it easy for you to make that kafara wallahu ta'ala alam we'll end it there inshallah if anyone has anything else feel free to come up inshallah uh but we'll end it there inshallah